This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. This is Lammers Millabs. So, this topic came about in an interesting way. There's a book, Millabs, Military Mind Control and Alien Abduction. That was published in 1999 by Illuminat Press. And as many of you know, Illuminat Press was a critically interesting publisher of paranormal and parapolitical books back in the 90s. But this book is extremely hard to find. I received my copy as a gift from a listener, Mark, in the UK, with the promise that I would do an episode about it. So here it is. Okay, so just to lay it out there in case you don't know, the term Millabs is a term that this man, Helmut Lammer, came up with as a sort of portmanteau of military abductions. And there's overtones of mind control with it. And we've touched on this topic of mind control and ab alien abductions and possible government involvement in it in a number of previous episodes in one way or another. Probably the most prominent one is our episode we did on Martin Cannon's essay, The Controllers. It also came up in the works of Leah Haley that we looked at a couple years ago. So who is Helmut Lammer? Well, he's billed, whenever he's mentioned, as an atmospheric scientist. Uh, back in the 90s, that's how he was introduced. Atmospheric scientist Helmut Lammer. He lives in Europe, and I googled him. I think he's on LinkedIn. I think that no, no, I found his homepage or his staff page at his job at the Austrian Academy of Sciences, where he continues to work on stuff about atmospheres, particularly exoatmospheres. I, I think that was the term um, atmospheres and other planets, if I understand all the different scientific terminology. He is. He's a legit scientist. He's authored and, and co-authored dozens and dozens and dozens of scientific papers, all with titles that are way over my head. So his background is not in really anything that has to do with the topic about which he wrote this book about. He's not a neurosurgeon. He's not a neuroscientist. He's not a psychologist. He's not... Uh, he's really not a ufologist, really. It's a different sort of background. And one could argue that as an atmospheric scientist, he doesn't really have expertise in these sort of ufological topics. But to be fair, nobody really has expertise in ufological topics uh, unless they've gotten it by reading a bunch of UFO books, right? Now, what I like about Lammer is that he doesn't really throw around at least that I noticed, throw around the fact that he's a scientist as proof that his ideas are 
the right ones. So I liked that. Now, as for his wife, Marion, his co-author on this, I could not find other information on her at all except her role working with him on this book. If anybody has any Marion Lammer um, bio scoop out there, uh, feel free to hit me with that information. He did author other books on UFO subjects, primarily in German, but the Milabs book is really the one he is the most known for, or the one for which he is the most known, if we want to be really, really picky about our prepositions. This episode is about this particular book, Milabs, and its precursors and responses to it. I just want to make sure you know this is not about the Milab mind control angle on abductions in general, because we'd be here all day with that. We might be here all day anyway. And I think that looking at the Milab's concept works better in the context of examining sort of the totality of an individual experiencer's story. So rather than this is all about Milab's and everybody who's claimed in a Milab experience, I think it works better sort of like we did with the Leah Haley thing. This is Leah Haley's story and how she described it. And in the course of that, she comes to this conclusion about the government and military angle with regard to alien abduction experiences. And this book is significant, really, because Lammer develops this term Milabs. He begins this argument about it or his theorizing about it. Before the book is written, and we'll talk about an essay in the MUFON UFO Journal that led this off, and another significant thing about the story is not just his theory, but about the people who came out sort of strongly against it, because they were some pretty interesting names, as we're going to find out. So just to give you a rundown of how we're going to do this, we're going to look at the essay that Lammer writes that kicks off the Milabs discussion. We're going to look at responses to that essay, and then we're going to look at his book, responses to that, and responses are going to be drawn from some big names and also some UFO buff on the street sorts of things, or at least some examples I was able to find on some of the darker, dustier, older corners of the internet. So the story begins in December 1996, or at least the December 1996 issue of the MUFON UFO Journal where Helmut Lammer published an article called Preliminary Findings of Project Milab, Evidence for Military Kidnappings of Alleged UFO Abductees. It's a six-page article, and it would form the core of what Lammer would later write about in his book. But this is a preliminary report, so we should not be surprised if there is some difference, some development between this version of his argument and what eventually appears in his book. This article would be transcribed and find itself posted and reposted all over the internet, which made it a handy precy of his ideas about this topic that was, you know, easily obtainable for people because the book itself would end up being so difficult to find. I, I think if 
Lammer's MUFON article hadn't made it out there onto the internet in various forms, we wouldn't really hear that much about him except that he wrote this book. But because this article had quite a bit of circulation on Usenet and websites and things like that, people became more familiar with his ideas than they would have if it were only available in the book, since that book would go out of print, and indeed, Illuminate Press would cease to exist not long after it was published, and remaining copies of the book would be rare and expensive. Lammer begins the article by introducing the concept of military abductions and asserting that such claims are becoming more common all the time. The core of the UFO abduction phenomenon cannot be explained psychologically as hallucinations or mass delusions. The passing decades of abduction research brought other changes. Recently, some UFO abductees have alleged that they were also being kidnapped by the military intelligence personnel, a MILAB, and taken to hospitals and or military underground facilities. Few of the popular books on the subject of UFO abductions mentioned these experiences. Especially disconcerting is the fact that abductees recalled seeing military intelligence personnel working side by side with alien beings in these secret facilities. The presence of human military and or civilian personnel inhabiting the same physical reality as the alien beings exceeds both the mindsets of the skeptic and open-minded researcher alike by several orders of magnitude. Lammer laments that abduction researchers tend not to focus on such cases because they are relatively few in number, and notes that mind control researchers, quote, suggest that these cases are evidence that the whole UFO abduction phenomenon is staged by the intelligence community as a cover for their illegal experiments, end quote. So basically, we're in a situation where these military-flavored abductions are either being ignored or used to marginalize or eliminate an alien explanation entirely. Lammer also believes that, quote, abduction cases in which the abductee reports that he or she was also abducted by the military are very important for two reasons, end quote. One, if the UFO community has evidence that a covert military intelligence task force is involved in the UFO abduction phenomenon, we would then know that this phenomenon represents a matter of national security. Two, the alleged military involvement in the abduction phenomenon could be evidence that they use abductees for mind control experiments as test targets for microwave weapons, or that they monitor and kidnap abductees for information gathering purposes during a UFO abduction experience. If one of these points is correct, one can expect to run into early resistance when proposing congressional hearings about UFOs. For these reasons, I started Project MILAB and present in this article my preliminary findings. In this article of preliminary findings, there are seven sections, including the introduction, which we just covered, that was section one, and section seven is a sort of concluding discussion section. And the intervening five sections correspond to chapters in the Milab's book that would come a couple years later. So this article in the December 96 MUFON journal really is a sort of outline of what his final report would be and would expand upon. So section two is entitled Helicopter Activity in Connection with Milab's. And I am not sure there is a more 1990s thing possible to find in a book about any of these topics other than this. Because, I mean, honestly, helicopters, 
And guess what? I think they might be dark colored and unmarked. One, the helicopter mystery starts during the late 60s, early 70s in connection with animal mutilations. Two, during these times, the agenda behind the helicopters showed a minor interest in UFO abductees. Three, the helicopters began to increase their interest in UFO abductees during the 80s up to the present, but were also reported near animal mutilation sites and other areas in Northern America. Four, at present, many North American abduction researchers have some cases in their files. Five, there were reports of phantom helicopter activity in England during the 70s, but it seems that their interest in animal mutilations and abductees is limited to North America. Just so you know, we will get into more depth on these ideas when we get to the actual book. But for now, I think it's good just to get an idea of his basic arguments and conclusion. You know, I like sort of going through these things in chronological order in the same way that people who were first being exposed to the ideas and things like the MUFON journal and these books would have experienced them. The next section is entitled Alleged Kidnappings by Military Slash Intelligence Personnel. Lammer points to the abduction experiences that were experienced by Leah Haley and Katharina Wilson and Carla Turner and reports that, quote, a worldwide survey. And and this this might be addressed in the book. I'm going through these things in chronological order. So if I was just reading this, I would note that and I'll finish this sentence in a bit. I would just note that there are lots of footnotes for the various claims that Lammer is making. But there is no footnote denoting who did this worldwide survey and when it was done. But he reports that there is a worldwide survey done of abduction researchers. And he found that, quote, most North American abduction researchers have on average two to five MILAB cases in their files. At present, it seems to me that there are no UFO-related MILABs in Australia, South America, Africa, Europe, England, Ireland, end quote. So just some sort of data science, and that's overselling what I know about data science, but some data science observations about this. North American abduction researchers have on average two to five MILAB cases in their files. That is an almost entirely meaningless statement unless we know the actual total number of abduction cases in their files. If they have two to five MILAB cases in their files and their entire collection of case files is 150, yeah, that's a small percentage. If, however, they've got two to five MILAB cases in their files and they've got a total of seven files, then my gosh, the MILAB thing is taking over. So these cases are present. They're not predominating by any stretch of the imagination, but they are there and they are a North American thing for the most part. In summarizing this section, Lammer explains that there are some significant differences between MILABs as he has come to understand and define them and the typical alien abduction scenario. MILABs involve the following elements, activity of dark, unmarked helicopters, the appearance of strange vans or buses outside the houses of abductees, exposure to disorienting electromagnetic fields, drugging, 
transport with a helicopter, bus, or truck to an unknown building or an underground military facility. Usually, there are physical after-effects, like grogginess and sometimes nausea after the kidnappings. There is also a difference when the abductors appear. In most UFO cases, the beings appear through a closed window or wall, or the abductee feels a strange presence in the room. Most abductees report that they are paralyzed from the mental power of the alien beings. In Milabs, the abductee reports that the kidnappers give him or her a shot with a syringe. It is interesting that Milab experiencers report that they are examined by human doctors in rectangular rooms and not in round, sterile rooms, as in descriptions of UFO abductees. The described rooms, halls, and furniture are similar to terrestrial hospital rooms, laboratories, or research facilities, and have nothing to do with UFO furniture. But despite these differences, there are some similarities as well. The examination is somewhat similar to UFO abductions. The Milab victim is not paralyzed, but tied to an examination table or a gynecological chair. Sometimes the abductee gets a strong drink before an examination. This is perhaps a contrast-enhancing fluid. Milab doctors are mostly dressed in white lab coats and show an interest in implants and or gynecological examinations. In some Milab cases, a military doctor allegedly searches for implants and sometimes implants the abductee with a military device. Therefore, surgeons seeking advanced alien implants should also be prepared to possibly find military devices too. We'll get to this notion a bit later, but I noted at this point in my own initial reading that this concept of screen memories or other kind of mind manipulation could account for some of these differences and similarities between so-called Milabs and, eh, let's say, so-called traditional alien abductions. The next section is entitled Terrestrial Implants, and here Lammer talks about RFID tags the size of a grain of rice that are being developed that could possibly be modified to track humans. And he also explains that some abductees, like Leah Haley, have had such items removed from their ears. One example of these devices, he says, can be tracked by equipment on military helicopters. He also briefly discusses the work back in the 1950s and 60s of Dr. Jose Delgado, who patented devices to basically control motor functions and things like that in human beings. And Jose Delgado can't say it. Jose Delgado's work has been discussed, I think, in every treatise, essay, book, chapter, web post, YouTube rant about mind control implantation that I've ever happened across. I think I first heard about Jose Delgado's work in an interview that Jim Keith did when he was promoting his book, also from Illuminate Press, Mind Control, World Control. Lammer also explains that investigation into these devices has been ongoing, but not necessarily within the UFO community. Implants were being used on unwitting persons as early as 50 years ago. One well-documented case of the implantation of an electronic device into a victim is the case of Robert Naisland. Mr. Naisland claims he was unwittingly implanted during an operation in Stockholm, Sweden. He has x-rays which show clearly a mushroom-shaped device in his brain. He claims that the operation was performed by Dr. Kurt Strand, who inserted the device in his head through the right nasal passage. 
Interestingly, UFO abductees since the 60s have reported how alien beings implanted small objects up their nose through the nasal passage and sinus cavity. The transnasal approach of implants is in common use in neurosurgery. Robert Naisland is not the only victim. He is now a researcher of Groupin, an organization against illegal mind control experiments. Groupin and other organizations like the Freedom of Thought Foundation have collected a lot of evidence that a secret implantation program is going on. These organizations are in contact with many victims all over the world who have reported similar effects as Naisland, but have nothing to do with the UFO community. This is something I find fairly interesting because when I was working on, I think, my first conspiracy theory book back in some year that I can't remember, I was kind of astounded to find that there are a number of organizations sort of advocating for victims of government mind control experimentation. And they have magazines and newsletters and websites, and they are talking about all of these sorts of things and have been for a very long time. But the UFO community, uh, the sort of traditional UFO community back in the 80s and 90s that was all in on abductions, wasn't really looking at this. They were talking about implants, yet people like Roger Lear extracting implants and bits of metal and things from so-called alleged alien abductees. But rarely was the um, very plausible notion of these being terrestrial objects discussed very much. Section five is virtual reality scenarios and microwave hearing. Now, virtual reality or VR is also a huge 90s thing, kind of the leftover remnants of cyberpunk. And I recall particularly the Doctor Who novels, spinoff novels of the early 1990s. Every other one seemed to have some kind of virtual reality element to it. You had uh, similar things pop up in episodes of Red Dwarf. We're just now getting to the point where, where virtual reality is anywhere close to the form that was promised decades ago. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. Also, this phrase, virtual reality scenarios, Lammer does give credit to uh, Carla Turner, who coined that term. And, and these are basically I think of them in terms of that notion of screen memories, if you're familiar with that abduction term. A new memory, a new experience kind of grafted over um, what actually happened. If you recall our episode on the book, The Janos People, you know, the, the family who was driving along saw a UFO by a barn and just kept driving under hypnosis. They have a completely different memory of what happened. So, Lammer says that false memories and experiences may be able to be transmitted through these very terrestrial implants in the victim. And while it sounds like it, this is not necessarily a science fictional idea. The New World Vistas was a major undertaking for the USAF Scientific Advisory Board. This military publication was published in June 1996 and is a forecast of possible military developments over the next 50 years. In it, military scientists suggest the development of electromagnetic energy sources, the output of which can be pulsed, shaped, focused, and coupled with the human body in a fashion that will allow one to prevent voluntary 
muscular movements, control emotions and actions, produce sleep, transmit suggestions, interfere with both short-term and long-term memory, and produce an experience set or delete an experience set. The military scientists argue that the concept of imprinting a virtual reality experience act is highly speculative, but nonetheless highly exciting. If such a technology was developed in secret and exists today, the remarkable vividness of some abduction accounts may be explained by the implantation of an experience set into the brain of an abductee. He also discusses the Fry effect, or microwave hearing, which is sort of words or ideas transmitted via microwave brains in microwave, microwave beams into the brain or into a transmitter that has been placed in the brain. And he says these could account for some abductees' claims that they hear voices. Now, often, these voices that abductees heard were dismissed as um, schizophrenia. But if these abductees had no history of schizophrenia before their experience, well, that's a different sort of thing. Maybe this Fry effect, this ability to transmit signals into the brain could be a possible explanation. It's important to note that Lammer is very careful to explain that, quote, these scenarios cannot be the case for all UFO abductions, like multiple abductions, but it may explain a small portion or may play a significant role in Millab's, end quote. He's not attempting to explain away the entire phenomenon, just account for some aspects of it. And the final section before his conclusion is entitled Otherworldly Journeys and Military Underground Facilities. And here, Lammer refers to the work of Dr. Richard Souter and his work on underground bases. Now, we did an episode about underground bases a while back, and I think we talked about Richard Souter. So be sure to check that out in the archives if you have not. Thus, we know what underground bases are, but what about otherworldly journeys? Now, this is not just a generic term for a journey to another world. Here, Lammer is referring to a specific pattern undergone by abductees, as described by researcher Thomas Bullard. 1. Preparation. The alien beings put the abductee into a protective environment for the trip. 2. Travel. Actual transit to the other world occurs. 3. Underground. The abductee passes underground. 4. Landscape. The abductee sees the surface of the other world. 5. Museum. The tour of the other world includes a stop at a museum or zoo. He goes on to cite several abductee accounts, including those of Betty Andreessen and Carla Turner, that exhibit these things, but acknowledges that the flashbacks in which the abductees describe such journeys need to be investigated very carefully. Such flashbacks should be investigated very carefully, since they could be a mixture of an otherworldly journey, entering a well-lit underground city, and a Millab underground experience, seeing military personnel. It is also important to note that some abductees have flashbacks during which they see aliens and military personnel together, but during hypnosis the abductee remembers only the military personnel. Perhaps the abductee mixed a UFO abduction experience and a Millab scenario, or the abductee underwent some kind of hypnoprogramming by military psychiatrists during the kidnapping. 
Perhaps the military uses something like electronic dissolution of memory, which is accomplished by electronically jamming the brain, causing the neurotransmitter acetylcholine to create static which blocks out sights and sounds. After this mind control procedure, a MILAP abductee would have no memory of what he, she saw or heard. The mind of the abductee would be blank. There's a lot of maybe in there, a lot of perhaps, but Lammer is smart enough not to try and be too definitive about this stuff at this point. It's preliminary, after all, and he does admit that there's a possibility that Milabs are reporting, or that what Milabs are reporting are actually, quote, cover stories induced by the hypno-programming processes of military psychiatrists, end quote. He does acknowledge that some people claim that military folks could be dressing up as aliens and that there are no alien abductions at all. He doubts this is the case, noting the military aspect shows up primarily after the 1980s, not before. Also, there are mind control victims that report the same effects as abductees without the UFO aspect. And he wonders why, if abductions are just a cover for mind control, there's the reproductive aspect to many abductee experiences. So he concludes that, you know, it's not just all abductions are fake because it's just mind control experimentation, right? And he concludes the whole thing by providing a rundown of his current hypothesis. Milabs may be evidence that a secret military intelligence task force has been in operation in North America since the early 80s and is involved in the monitoring and kidnapping of alleged UFO abductees. In the beginning of the 80s, a lot of money became available under black budgets for top secret military projects like the Strategic Defense Initiative. This task force might be financed by a portion of this money. It seems to me that they are interested in well-investigated UFO abduction cases. They are monitoring the houses of their victims, kidnapping and possibly implanting them with military devices sometime shortly after a UFO abduction experience. It appears to me that they are searching for possible alien implants too. Their gynecological interest in female abductees could be explained if they are searching for alleged alien hybrid embryos since many of the abducted females report missing embryo fetus experiences. It seems equally probable that the force or the people who are behind these kidnappings employ advanced mind control technology which is currently being tested illegally on people who have nothing to do with UFO abductions. He's threading very carefully the needle between acknowledging the terrestrial aspects of some abductions, but also connecting them to the possibility of actual alien abductions. It's not an either or thing. It's not all mind control or all alien abductions. There are some of each that are on those extreme one or the other end, but there are many in the middle that might have elements of both. In a way, it's not entirely dissimilar to the John Keel O.H. Krill hypothesis of the military-industrial complex, or the military-intelligence complex, rather, being in league with the aliens. Although here it's less being in league with the aliens and more being suspiciously curious about them. So that brings us to the end of Lammer's initial December 1996 article in the MUFON UFO Journal. And it would receive some responses from people and one response from one person in particular in the MUFON journal and another response from that person that was not in the UFO journal. And that is an interesting story as well. So in the next issue 
of the MUFON UFO Journal, which was February 1997, a woman named Victoria Alexander submitted a letter to the editor. We'll be back in a week, as usual, fielding your questions and comments about this episode. So be sure to get those to us in the comments under this episode on the website or on social media like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or through email for you email types. And announcement time again following up next week, February 1st, sees the launch of the Chizo Media Patreon. And we've got some treats for you. And I just wanted to explain in a little more detail about what's going to be there. And I promise I won't talk about this much going forward. I'll sort of mention what might be on there you know, recently as a little enticement, but I just wanted to, to sort of lay it out. There will be a $2 a month level, and that will provide regular text and photo updates on the research and recording process that goes into our shows. Um, think of it almost as little sort of extended bloggy type things. I'll doubtlessly be showing off weird books I've spent way too much money on. And Samantha is really looking forward to talking about the angle we approach things as we research things as historians, sort of an outlet for also conversation about those things. You'll also get episodes of uh, both shows, Saucer Life and Great Lakes Lore, as soon as they're ready and with all the Patreon talk excised so you don't have to hear about it. We don't carry actual ads, so getting rid of the Patreon pitch in the episodes will be our version of an ad-free show. So at the $5 a month level, in addition to, to that stuff, there will be a bonus episode of The Saucer Life and a bonus episode of Great Lakes Lore every month. So two bonus episodes per month. Uh, bonus video content for each episode. We've been playing around in the last couple episodes of having just video immediately after record stops uh, or recording stops on the episode and just um, either on Great Lakes lore, Sam and I talking about uh, what we liked, what we didn't like, what was frustrating or fun about the episode and what our favorite parts of it were. And in the case of the saucer life, it's, it's me sort of staring into the camera and going, my God, what have I done? What have I done? Or at least that was the gist of the one I did for the uh, George Adamski's Cosmic Philosophy episode, which makes sense if you've heard the episode. So there will be that. Uh, there will be additional video content uh, like outtakes, uh, listener questions and answers, field trips. We've uh, we've done some field trips, so sort of like when we went to the, uh, the Michigan Bigfoot conference last summer for the Saucer Life or things like that, and other interesting stuff on a regular basis. The, the way we've got it planned out, we think it's good value for money. And we're excited about some of the extra stuff we've got coming up. And this is also just a way to, uh, to, to do some interesting, more experimental things that I've been, especially with the Saucer Life, that I've been wanting to try out. As always, you can check out past episodes of the show in your podcast app or at saucerlife.com. And we are still on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life. And you can email us at uh, thesaucerlife at gmail.com. Oh, and we're, we are on Facebook. If you search for Saucer Life Podcast, our page there shows up. You can also contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. And now back to the program.
In the next issue of the MUFON Journal, the February 1997 issue, Lammer's article had generated some reader response. One letter in particular was interesting for a number of reasons. I would like to respond to preliminary findings of Project Millab by Helmut Lammer. In a word, horse droppings. The stories of alleged abductions and medical examinations by the U.S. military, black budget or otherwise, are merely the latest twist in abduction folklore. Abductees, like Madonna, know how to constantly reinvent themselves so as to keep us with our tongues hanging out. So the argument seems to be heading in the direction of abductions aren't a real thing. So this argument about what some abductions might be must be wrong. And there's also, I think it's safe to say, an ill-fitting emphasis on abductees being attention-seeking. When honestly, I think it's safe to say that the most attention-seeking people in any sort of abduction research situation are usually the abduction researchers rather than the abductees. Also, horse droppings? Cutesy fake vulgarities are probably second only to quotation marks to denote emphasis on the list of things that make me irrationally angry. Also, her sentence construction of what was it? Abductees, comma, like Madonna, comma, know how to constantly reinvent themselves so as to keep us with our tongues hanging out. Is she saying that Madonna likes to reinvent herself to keep our tongues hanging out? Or is she saying Madonna is an abductee? Because honestly, the construction of that sentence makes it really, really ambiguous and kind of confusing. Now, the author of this letter goes on to say that, quote, since we are all acronym possessed, may I propose AAA for an alien apparition, end quote. With this tremendously lame joke behind us, the letter writer transitions to focusing on the fact that Lammer used the account of an abductee named Debbie Jordan as one of his examples. And this author gives a fairly slanted recounting of Jordan's story, including the astoundingly petty comment, quote, I went to three bookstores looking for Miss Jordan's book and finally found it in a local library, end quote. In this recounting, the letter writer concentrated on Jordan's harrowing experiences of being with her friend Dave, being kidnapped, examined, probed, and having an implant removed from her nose. Instead of calling the police, the writer snarks, Jordan called abduction researcher Bud Hopkins. Now, actually, I don't have a huge problem with that amount of snark right there. It's a completely reasonable thing to sort of say or wonder about, but... The way the writer closes this letter just kind of irks me. When will someone separate the sexually repressed fantasies of lonely women from the abduction genre and sort out what belongs in therapy and what belongs in the MUFON journal? Victoria Alexander, Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, leaving aside the dismissive and stereotypical view of abductions, let's ask ourselves about the author. A bunch of you probably are saying, I knew it, when you heard Victoria Alexander's name. But for the rest of you, she did some UFO research and is married to John Alexander. John Alexander is, well, this is what his website biography currently says. Dr. John Alexander has been a leading advocate for the development of non-lethal weapons since he created renewed interest in the field starting in 1989. In 2003, he served as a mentor to Afghan Ministry of Defense senior officials through the Office of Military Cooperation. 
He has traveled to all of the continents on Earth. He trekked the remote areas of Tibet, including the Mount Everest base camp, went to Timbuktu in the Sahel in West Africa, tracked gorillas in Rwanda, met shamans in the Amazon, Mongolia, and voodoo witch doctors in Togo and Benin, traveled across cartel-controlled areas of Central America, visited ancient temples in Burma, Laos, Thailand, and Cambodia. In New Guinea, he witnessed the emergence of Stone Age tribes people who still practice cannibalism on occasion, and in 2014 was swimming in the open ocean with humpback whales in the kingdom of Tonga. In 2015, he attended Kumbh Mela in Nashik, India, visited Bali and Borobudur in Indonesia, and was diving on the Great Barrier Reef off Australia. In 2016, a highlight was diving with great white sharks off Isle de Guadalupe, Mexico. I'm pretty sure witch doctor isn't a currently accepted term. So anyway, that's John Alexander, noted expert on non-lethal weaponry, who is deeply involved in UFOs, near-death experience research, and all sorts of other things. You may also remember Victoria Alexander as the woman who called and left a threatening message for researcher Martin Cannon, as discussed on our episode about the controllers a couple years ago. Now, that incident took place earlier in the 1990s. It's almost like Victoria Alexander has some kind of pre-existing axe to grind about mind control research intersecting with the UFO world. And as an aside, I found this, which I got on the whale.to website. This is a discussion of the Alexanders and is delightfully unhinged. Colonel John Alexander, also called Doctor, who has been living in Arizona and who has been in charge of making psychic warriors for the U.S. Army, has the inside reputation of being the Illuminati's top mind control programmer. The Scotland St. Clair family of the Magdalene line, not of Emmanuel, so-called Jesus, are vampires. Colonel John Alexander and Lieutenant Colonel Aquino both have vampiric wives. I hope you can find photos of them. I saw Colonel Alexander's last night. He was the head of Los Alamos and is called Dr. Death. He has a doctorate in thanatology and wrote the book Non-Lethal Weapons. Chris O'Brien, who was lecturing last night in Sedona, said his wife doesn't eat. Hell no. She drinks human blood. Please see my page on Aquino's Sinclair wifey. By the way, the Da Vinci Code made the Sinclairs into heroin gods. Did you see the movie? Dan Brown got away scot-free. Notice, scot-free. Even though he stole the ideas from the books Genesis and Holy Blood, Holy Grail, but the judges of the Court of Snakes didn't find him or sue him, but let him go since he did their bidding of making them the children of Jesus, i.e. Emmanuel, via Magdalene. Note, I do not endorse anything you just heard. Another note, I barely understand anything you just heard. Now, in the next issue of the MUFON Journal, Lammer himself would respond to Victoria Alexander's letter. It is interesting to hear Victoria Alexander using fecal language, horse droppings, to criticize an article of which she has obviously read the first two pages. Perhaps it is easier for Mrs. Alexander to ridicule an abductee than comment on the evidence that I presented in Project Millab. For example, black helicopter harassment near the homes of Millab victims, similarities between terrestrial implant procedures and devices, and the reports of alleged mind control victims, and hypnosis transcripts containing descriptions of human military involvement. Is Mrs. Alexander an expert in the sexually repressed fantasies of lonely women? Or does she simply discount all reports of abductions during which anything other than a sexually related event occurs? I eagerly await an AAA, another Alexander announcement, containing a more rational evaluation of my article. 
More science, please. Less polemic. Debbie Jordan would also fire back, focusing especially on the sexually repressed characterization of abductees, on which Alexander based a lot of her argument. I would also like to inform Mrs. Alexander that I've been happily married to my husband for 10 years. If she has any suspicions that I am a lonely woman who is experiencing sexually repressed fantasies, I encourage her to contact my husband herself by writing to Eric at ewilson at alienjigsaw.com. He would be happy to set the record straight and tell Mrs. Alexander how incorrect her outdated Freudian hypothesis is as it relates to me. Mrs. Alexander is incorrect again when she accuses us of being acronym-possessed, referring to the title of Dr. Lammer's article, Project Millab. I'm just guessing, but perhaps it is she who is acronym-possessed. After all, she's the one married to a retired colonel of the military. Ooh, shots fired. There's also another nice little dig at the end of Debbie Jordan's letter. Finally, and most importantly, what do stories of alleged abductions and medical examinations by the U.S. military black budget or otherwise have to do with sexually repressed fantasies? Is there something we should know about Mrs. Alexander? Now, I'm not entirely sure what that means, but it sounds pretty spicy. Victoria Alexander would expand her thoughts about Millab's and abductions in general in an essay entitled, What Would Freud Say? Probably something in German. It's my guess, but this was apparently submitted to, but subsequently not published by MUFON. It circulated online and eventually reached a wider audience on the website of Cause, Citizens Against UFO Secrecy, in March 1999. This is before the Millab's book was published. I'm fairly sure. I think that was later in 1999. The essay had appeared earlier, like I said, and the earliest version I found floating around, I'm not saying this is the earliest version, but this is just an earlier version I found, was from November of 1998. Now, the Citizens Against UFO Secrecy intro to this piece is, in my opinion, kind of annoyingly gushing, I guess. Cause presents a commentary by Victoria Alexander, the female energy behind the man known for his work with non-lethal weapons and allegedly a present member of MJ-12, her husband, John Alexander. Victoria has written extensively about her controversial opinions about certain aspects of the UFO phenomenon, and today's commentary is no exception. I'm going to start referring to the saucer wife when I introduce her to people as the female energy behind the host of several podcasts. What a strange way to put something. I don't know. That's just, it just sounds very strange to me. Alexander opens by honestly denouncing the entire alien abduction concept. At this time, there's absolutely no incontrovertible proof that aliens are abducting, experimenting on, sexually abusing, and mating with humans to produce a hybrid race ongoing fast-track advances in genetic engineering clearly indicates that physical intercourse to produce hybrids is extremely inefficient and unnecessary. As we have seen with the preliminary work in cloning, Earth scientists do not even need sperm or ova to reproduce offspring. Yet we are asked to believe clumsy, archaic procedures are conducted by a technologically superior species. What I find so strange about this and about this entire article in particular is that, you know, it's sort of focused on Lammer's stuff, but also on the alien abductions in general. And those are two very different narratives about what 
is going on. So she's she's it seems like a giant bundle of various straw man arguments, none of which really get close to very logically attacking what Lammer is actually doing. So abductions, no evidence. All we have, she says, are stories. But if the stories aren't factually real, what purpose do abduction accounts serve, she asks. And her explanation or argument about what abduction accounts really are for and what purpose they serve is a bit of an expansion on the direction in which she was going in her letter to the MUFON journal. I propose that the abduction experience in some way enriches the lives of abductees by either purging their troubled psyches or allows them to undergo an arthritic sci-fi shamanic jaunt without the burden of leaving the comfort of bedroom and home. They undergo a self-described horrific ordeal, which sets them apart, identifies them, and regardless of angry denials, makes them special, either to investigators, researchers, the media, or their circle of friends. So we're back to this notion of the sharing of abduction stories basically being attention-seeking behavior. But what about those who aren't really seeking attention, who are anonymous, who are simply names in a file in some researcher's filing cabinet whose stories are never shared? What about them? They're not seeking attention, are they? In anticipated response to the claim that when abductees refuse to go public, request anonymity, do not pursue a book contract, or appear on TV shows, this in any way automatically anoints the story truthful. I submit that writing to a researcher, having a prominent UFO personality read one's diaries, letters, and poems, to be counseled and comforted by interested parties for hours, and discussing one's entire life in detail is enough satisfaction already, and quite flattering, without the taxing demands of a book deal or an appearance on the Jerry Springer show. This is, this is kind of gross. Regardless of the root cause of abduction experiences, it's often evident, at least to me, that in a lot of cases, there's some trauma at the heart of it. And it's it's real. And sometimes that trauma is exacerbated by the abduction hypnosis research process, depending on who might be involved. Alexander seems almost gleefully dismissive of abductees here. She then cherry picks some examples from abductee literature, focusing her attention on passages that highlight sexual aspects of the phenomenon, psychological issues suffered by abductees, and at one point, basically mocking an abductee's obesity. Of course, not all abductees are overweight, psychosexually incapacitated, or suffering from a life tormented by illnesses. Yet with few exceptions, this is the Alien Abduction Foundation. These abductee pioneers laid the groundwork and introduced a scenario that offers a myriad of psychological benefits. The experience is indeed being reshaped and redesigned to fit a person's peculiar emotional needs, whatever that may be. She finally, eventually, turns her attention to Lammer's Millab's thesis and accuses him of basically having no idea what he's talking about about anything. Um, and for example, with regard to black budgets and budgetary structures that would be needed to deceive lawmakers and bureaucrats in order to carry out such projects. She also has strong doubts about his technical knowledge. Throughout Lammer's paper, he consistently attributes technical capabilities far beyond the state of the art. He believes everything he's told by Millabs, assuming such technology has been perfected, employed, and has been operational for decades. 
While abductees have been reporting their experiences over long periods of time, and in some cases from generation to generation, the first operational GPS satellite was not launched until February 1989. The 24 satellites of the GPS constellation was not completed until June 1993. This is just willfully obfuscatory. Um, I did some checking. The first GPS test satellites that we know of here in the public went into orbit in the 1970s. And I'm sure the government, the military, anybody who would be doing the sorts of things Lammer suspects they might be doing would be having access to these things far before even the rest of the sort of in quotes normal military would. Also, Lammer says many times in that initial MUFON article that the Millabs thing is very much a 1980s and onward phenomenon. I don't know, kind of right around the time that some of the technology he was talking about would have been available to somebody, maybe. I don't know. She moves toward her conclusion with a final condemnation of Lammer's work and a reiteration of the psychological basis of abduction claims. In summary, Lammer's conclusions are totally unsubstantiated and therefore unreliable. He juxtaposes scientific sources with junk logic and tabloid-style journalism. The Millab hypothesis supports a psychological explanation. If veridical evidence for physical abduction exists, it is incumbent on the victims to report it. If psychological help is needed, get it. And then she moves into a final condemnation of abductees, and it's, it's a doozy. Society applauds and encourages individuals to come forward and report domestic abuse, rape, child abuse, and sexual harassment in the workplace and the military. We support people who fight drug dealers in their neighborhoods. We recognize the peril these individuals put themselves in by coming forward. In these cases, violence is not a mere threat, but a likely outcome. However, we allow abductees to be absolved from publicly reporting gross injustices against them by our military personnel. If indeed there are hundreds, even thousands of women who are victims of unwanted military surveillance and criminal activities, their impressive numbers will prevail. To effect change, they must stand up and present their case to the public. If law-abiding, high-functioning, tax-paying citizens come forward with their allegations and provide credible testimony, they'll be listened to. Or have we forgotten the fact that we live in a democratic society with laws against kidnapping and medically experimenting on its citizens? I urge all men and women who have been harassed, abused, and kidnapped by military personnel to publicly come forward. In case you had any sort of illusion left that this was a good faith effort to make an argument against what Lammer was proposing, and there are arguments to be made against what Lammer is proposing. He hadn't at this point proven anything conclusively, but if you thought that's what Victoria Alexander was doing, yikes. Yeah. I mean, come on. I mean, if you're being mind controlled by the government, why don't you say something? Okay. To whom? Right? There are at this point in 1998 or 99, when she's writing this, there are multiple documented cases of government mind control experimentation. We've talked about this sort of thing on the show before. This is, this is, is just infuriating to me. This, this column is, 
is really, really irritating. And, and then and then she sort of gets sort of snarky at Debbie Jordan and Debbie Jordan's response in the MUFON journal. In furtherance of the comments addressed to me in the MUFON journal, I intend to avail myself of Catherine Wilson's generous suggestion that I contact her husband by email to discuss her sexuality. Though, aren't there internet chat rooms already set up for that kind of stuff? That doesn't make any sense. And it wasn't Katharina Wilson. It was Debbie Jordan she was responding to. Katherine Wilson was, I think, Debbie Jordan's co-author in her abduction book. But at the same time, what what is is... Alexander saying that aren't there internet chat rooms to discuss Debbie Jordan's sexuality with her husband? I don't know. It makes no sense. And then she signs off with this little gem. I'd like to thank my husband, John B. Alexander, PhD, for his support, review, and insightful contributions to this article. In case any of you thought that Victoria Alexander was an expert on GPS history and budgetary structure in the defense intelligence sector. I think we know who really wrote this or who really wrote significant bits of it. And this is where we're going to end this, which is part one. We're going to be doing part two next time. And we are actually going to get to, I'm pretty sure, the actual Millab's book. It's a wild ride, isn't it? Because there's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of arguments, but it's one of those things where the deeper I dug into this, the more there was. And so this is going to be one of our, maybe not rare anymore, but less common two-part episodes. So come back next time for the rest of the story. Next time, more Millabs. Thanks for listening. Remember to send in your questions and comments via the usual social media or email channels, and we'll address it on our feedback episode next week, where hopefully I won't have to answer every question with wait for part two. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. <laughs>